Hello everyone, this is Andre, the co-founder of Twins Tours and Travel in Jerusalem in Israel, born into a Christian Maronite family, and I'm a licensed tour guide and an ordained minister of the gospel. I have been leading numerous groups throughout the Holy Land for almost 20 years. Also, I'm an author of several books, and you can find them in Amazon. And one of the first books I wrote called One Friday in Jerusalem speaks about my life story. So join me for a journey of 10 days to understand the heart and the mind of Jesus and to understand the Bible in a deeper way with more details through the Middle Eastern perspective. Please share this podcast with your friends and families and churches and connect with me if you have any questions. Welcome everyone to day number three, walking and touring the land of the Bible. The theme of the day is the ministry of John the Baptist. And we're going to speak about John teaching about the kingdom of heaven in the future. So all this day will be focused on that theme. But first we're going to leave uh, the hotel uh, from Bethlehem and we're going to head all the way to the Jordan Valley and we're going to arrive to Jericho. We're going to learn about Jericho, the city of Palms. And then after that we're going to head to Qumran to learn about the Dead Sea Scrolls and then after that we're going to have lunch there and then head to the baptismal site Qasr al-Yahud known by Bethany beyond the Jordan in the Bible and we're going to speak more about uh, John the Baptist and then we're going to leave to head to the Jordan Valley and from the Jordan Valley go all the way up through the Syrian African Raft Valley which is part of it is the Jordan Valley and learn about it and we're gonna head to Nazareth to stay two nights in Nazareth so this is the big picture and today we in this session in this episode we're gonna focus only to talk about the road from Bethlehem all the way down to Jericho through the Jordan Valley and again point and teach what we see on the road and to remind you, we are checking out today from the hotel in Bethlehem after staying two nights. And the wake-up call is 6 o'clock in the morning. And I will tell all my group members, at 7 o'clock is breakfast. And before coming to breakfast, if you please can bring all your luggage all the way down and put it in the lobby. And after you put it in the lobby, you're going to see the bellboys taking the luggage from the lobby to put it in the bus compartment please make sure that everyone see his luggage going into the bus of course i'll be at that time in the lobby and making sure that uh, this uh, procedure will flow and everyone of the group members have seen and put the luggage in their luggage compartment of the bus and then only after that people can go and have breakfast and usually give them one hour for breakfast till eight o'clock the reason, the reason is that there are so many groups checking out uh, from hotels, maybe three, four groups each hotel, and there will be a lot of buses and a lot of luggage, and the bellboys will always mix all the luggage if they bring it from the rooms down to the buses. So in order for me to make sure that everyone have his own luggage in the bus earlier than everyone, I tell them to bring all the luggage, put it in the bus before having breakfast. And then after we have breakfast, we immediately leave. And there is no confusion, but so much clarity and everyone is on time. And it's make the checkout procedure 
way much more smooth. I have so many stories that many people had uh, lost one or two of their luggages when doing the checkout procedure. And what happens sometimes the bellboys by mistake will take the luggage from the room and it will you will put it in another bus or mix it with the other luggage or another person have the same similar luggage for the other group and they mix the luggage so this is why i'm so cautious and it's very important to make sure that everyone have his own luggage inside the bus compartment and seen seen it because if we arrive to the hotel by the end of the day and they will tell me I don't see my luggage I will ask them did you see it coming to the luggage compartment and I'll make everyone responsible about his own luggage in order not to be mixed and really this is my job to make sure that everything is running smoothly now everyone is seated in the bus I hold the microphone with my nice big smile and I tell them again did you see all your luggage going to the luggage compartment and everyone will answer me yes so my second question is very important do everyone have his passport actually i need to remind the group to have their passports on them that day because we are leaving through the checkpoint and as a reminder not to forget uh, the passport in the safe in the hotel or leave or check out without a passport so that's my job to remind the group and more than that i remind the group about their iphones their ipads their chargers and that they got everything out from the room and did not forget anything. It's not that they forget, it's that they are disoriented and after like two days of traveling, uh, they don't know exactly where they put their stuff. So I make sure and I'm aware before leaving the hotel that everyone have his own things because it's a headache for me later when they say, I forgot my iPad in the safe. I forgot my passport in the room that I have to make phone calls and to find someone to bring them all these things and it happens most of the time. So from my experience, I learned to remind every participant about their things before leaving or before checking out from the hotel. We are leaving Bethlehem through the checkpoint and sometimes the checkpoint is so busy. But what we do behind the scenes, me and the driver will make some phone calls with our contacts to check if there's even long lines at the checkpoint or not. So if there is a, no long lines, we head through the checkpoint. But option B, there are other ways to leave Bethlehem from other parts or other checkpoints than the major one. So it depends about the traffic and the situation at that day. But let us say we were, there was no traffic and we are leaving through the checkpoint of Bethlehem. And usually an army soldier will enter to the bus and he will ask where is the group from and we'll tell them they are from USA and he will ask for passports and so this is why it's important for me to remind the group in the morning to have their own passports and actually many times when they at the checkpoint the israeli soldier hears that the group is from the states he will immediately let us pass and leave down to israel so now we are heading from bethlehem all the way down through the jordan valley and we're gonna receive a lot of teachings on the way now we are driving through road number one, going all the way down to road number 90 through the Jordan Valley. And I would love to share about the background of this road. This road is around 17 miles and this road descends from 3,600 feet above sea level in a short time to be even uh, all the way to minus 
1,600 feet below sea level. So it's a very steep road and it's a very dangerous road. We are passing now by a place called Wadi Kilt and this is Wadi means a valley and uh, at that Wadi Kilt there is a lookout and from there we can see the first century route that connected between Jericho and Jerusalem. And when I have a young group and uh, they can really are good hikers, we can walk all the way the road, the original road of the first century from Wadi Kilt Monastery all the way down to Jericho. It takes around two hours hike. But I want to tell you this is not an easy hike because it's very steep and very high. And this is the first century route that the story of the Good Samaritan took place. So I will point for the group uh, this route from far. And I would like to share with you a story, a real story that happened with me on that route. Once I was with a small group in a minivan and I had a one-day tour and I finished touring the area of the Dead Sea. I had a full day at that area and going all the way up to Jerusalem. And I had one of the members of the group told me, Andre, please take us to Wadi Kult Lookout. I said it's becoming late because we're just finishing the day and it was around 6 p.m. And usually the sunset is around that time. And I told them this is a dangerous road and I do not prefer to go there. But you know what? Because you asked and it's a one day tour and you one time come to the country, I will make it happen. So I asked from the driver to go through that offbeat track to go to this Wadi Kilt first century route. The driver did not like that idea. But I just told him, just let's do it because they have coming from a far away distance and this will be a lifetime experience for them. For you to understand, this road, the offbeat track at Wadi Kilt is very steep and have a lot of curves and the driver have to really go in a very low speed. I was in a shock when I saw a car in front of us, despite all the curves, was in a high speed and I looked at the driver and I saw a Bedouin driving this car. I said, this is a crazy driver. And then we continued all the way to the lookout. As soon as we arrived there, I told my group, let us go all the way to the top of the hill to look at the monastery down and at the first century route. It's a little bit steep. It's like around the three to five minutes go all the way to the top. And all the group followed me despite it was getting darker and darker. And from the top, I was surprised to see a tour guide with two people explaining about the site. I said hi for him and then I finished explanation and he just already left. When I went down the hill before all the group, I gave them just like five minutes to take pictures. I heard someone screaming out loud. So I went very quick and I saw this tour guide just like crying and I told him what happened. He said, my car was stolen. All the passports of the pilgrims are in the car. All my money, everything. I said, how come you leave your car open and the keys are inside? He said, you know, I thought I'm going to be a quick. There was no one here. I thought I'm going to go and explain all the way quick. And I kept the car running. I said, first of all, you never do that in this part of the world. And you are a tour guide. You should know better than this. So uh, all the group came down and wondered what is the story and I told them like, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take the tour guide with us and the other two clients. We had a minibus. The minibus fits like 16 people. We had only a few, like 11 with us so they can join us. 
and I start to explain for them about the story of the Good Samaritan. And they felt it so much real because they understood what I am talking about in a 21st century setting. They gave my phone to the tour guide to make phone calls. Of course, there was no good service, but we left that area to the main road and he called and after like 15 minutes, the police came because there's a police station nearby and uh, the tour guide went with the police and documented everything and I was able to take the other two pilgrims with my group and uh, to get them back to their hotel. Let me explain for you why I said that this road is dangerous. And you know that during the first century, there were people outcasts living on that route because they can't live in the villages like Jericho or Jerusalem or Bethany. So they go outside the village and live in the desert or on the roads. Mobs, thieves, zealots, people that do not want to pay taxes to the Romans and they are against the Roman government. So they will find a refuge in the desert in these roads. And whenever there is a Roman caravan that is coming, there will a small Roman caravan, not a big one. They will attack it and will take everything, all the goodies from them. Blind people, people sick with leprosy, all of them are in that dangerous route. And it's not safe for people to go alone by themselves. And here is a lawyer asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? And if you read the paragraph in scripture from Luke chapter 10, the paragraph before it, it speaks about uh, Jericho. The paragraph after it speaks about Jerusalem. So this story took place between Jericho and Jerusalem. And when Jesus answers the lawyer, who is my neighbor, he will not answer him in pure theology. He will not answer him in one sentence. He will answer him like a story. And what is a story is a parable. Because when you hear the story, you hear the parable you will understand behind the scenes. And this is why I gave you a live story that happened with me with other groups at the same route for you to understand the meaning of the parable. And the, to understand the deeper part of the parable, we have to know the culture at that time, the customs, and the context of that parable. Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 37. I'm going to take verse by verse and explain it. Verse 30, and Jesus answering said, answered whom? The lawyer who asked who is my neighbor. Jesus said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his garment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this is a very important verse. I'm going to focus on three important cultural points in this verse says a certain man in greek a certain man the word certain means we do not know the background of this person actually there is no way to know his background is he a jew is he a roman is he a gentile or we don't know his background when he says a certain man and it's shocking when jesus saying a certain man went down this road from jerusalem to jericho Actually, this man is stupid. This is what is shocking. You never travel on this road by yourself in ancient times. And until today, you don't travel on this road even by yourself. Because it's not a safe route even till today when it gets dark. 
So this is very shocking to the first century culture. And then it says he fell among thieves. This is more shocking because if you fell among thieves in this culture, you just give them what they want. You don't argue with them. And we can see that this man argued with the thieves. How can we know that he's argued for the thieves? They stripped him out of his clothes. You know, there is a cultural meaning behind stripping someone out of his clothes from the person how they dress in this part of the world. He can know his background. You can know his village and you can know his identity and you can know his religion. So there is a second point here. There is no way to know who is this man. Look what the verse says. And wounded him and departed him and left him half dead. What does it mean half dead in Greek? It means unconscious. So he cannot talk. So this is the three cultural, the third cultural point. He cannot talk. And when someone talks here, I can know his background from his slang, from his language. We can know who and who he is and what is his identity. So the bottom line of this parable, when the lawyer is asking, who is my neighbor? The answer of Jesus is so clear. Any person in need is your neighbor. You don't have to help a Christian only. You don't have to help only someone from your tribe. You will always help any person in need. And this is what Christianity do. Our religion, I don't like to use the word religion. I like to say movement. Our movement, Jesus movement, we help everyone in need. And this is what made the Romans believe so much in Jesus because the Romans were caring only about the Romans. And they didn't care about the minorities or other people. This parable made a big effect in the Roman Empire that they believed in the name of Jesus. Verse 31. And there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, this parable will look a little bit uh, anti-Jewish. And this verse was saying a high priest is supposed to help and he did not help. Maybe this high priest have a good excuse because he's waiting for his time to go to serve all the way in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And if he see a dead person or he touch a dead person, he will become unclean. So he have to be cleansed and wait again to go up for his ceremony in the temple. So he have a good excuse. And look what verse 32 says. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Of course, the Levite will do exactly what the priest have done. Verse 33. And a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Look, the one who's supposed to help, the high priest did not help. And the one who's not supposed to help, the Samaritan, he did help. This is upside-down kingdom. Because you have to understand the background of the Samaritans. The Samaritans are rebuked in the community. The Samaritans are considered to be outcasts because they are unpure. And remember 723 BCE when Sennacherib came and conquered the kingdom of Israel in the north? He brought people from Assyria and let them live in Samaria. And these people from Assyria married and assimilated with the Jews and they became what we call Samaritans. So they are half Jews, so they are not pure. So they are rebuked from the Jewish community in the first century. And guess what? 
They are outcasts. Until today, we have Samaritans in the Holy Land here, and they are considered like to be outcasts. And there are only 731 Samaritans today in the land. And this community live only by itself till today. And you have to understand, this is the oldest continuous religious sect in the world. Let me repeat, the oldest continuous existing religious sect in the world. And because they are unique, they have special status in the country here. So they have the Israeli passports, they have the Jordanian passports, and they have the Palestinian passports. Verse 34. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an end and took care of him. And this is resembles like Jesus, how we were like in our life, wounded and in the world, and we found Jesus and he took us and we are members of the church and he paid the price for us till he come back. Verse 36, which of these three think you think that was a neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? Verse 37, and he said, the one who showed mercy to him, then Jesus said, Go and do likewise. Do you see how this story is? So when we understand the culture and the background behind the first century mindset, we understand more what did Jesus mean. The bottom line, any person in need is your neighbor. You are allowed to help anyone you see, have compassion on him, and do likewise. By this time, after I'll be finishing teaching about the Good Samaritan, we'll be arriving to Jericho, which is known by the City of Palms. Jericho in Hebrew and Aramaic means Yericho, and the original language in Hebrew comes from the word Yareach, and Yareach means to host, to stay, to have comfort, the word Yareach. And so in Aramaic have the same meaning and probably Jericho is halfway between the Dead Sea and Jerusalem and it's a stop before going up to Jerusalem one day walk so people can have rest inside Jericho before arriving up to Jerusalem to the temple because it's a steep hill going up to Jerusalem. So people will be hosted in Jericho and we know that Jesus many times had stayed in Jericho before going up to Jerusalem. Jericho is area A, which means completely under the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian Autonomy. And Jericho, you have to understand, is a Muslim town. The population is around 37,000. Only 1% of the population are Christians. There are 54 Catholic families. There are 30 Orthodox families. And there's also a small Aramaic Syrian Orthodox communities with only five families in Jericho. We are driving towards uh, downtown and there is a huge blue mosque to the right side. And we are at the roundabout and we are entering through the main road, downtown Jericho. It's amazing how the driver can manage to drive in all of this traffic. I tell the group, welcome to Mexico because there's so much traffic and even people is walking around all over. And uh, mostly what I do, I will see a lot of people selling bananas and there's a lot of traffic. So 
I will jump from the bus and go to a banana stand and I will negotiate a price and I'll get a huge, huge, huge like branch of banana and I bring it to the bus and I give all the group to taste from that banana. They think I'm crazy, but the best bananas actually comes from Jericho because there is a lot of fresh springs in Jericho. And at the heart of the downtown, there is a roundabout. And to the right side of the roundabout, there is the Palestinian Authority Station and policemen. And you can see the Palestinian flag in the center of the roundabout at the top. And to make sure that everything is running smooth, there is a lot of security. And they want to make sure that also the tourists are safe. And we're going to take to the right side on the roundabout and we will arrive to the traditional place, what we call the sycamore tree. I always tell my group, we will not go out of the bus. We're going to do the air-conditioned version. And by the way, I'll be very honest with all of them and tell them, this is not the original sycamore tree. The sycamore tree cannot live for 2,000 years. This is only the traditional sycamore tree. But probably the DNA of this tree go to maybe four or five generations all the way back to the first century because we know the sycamore tree can live around 400 years so that is not the original one then i asked the group a question why did zacchaeus climb the tree they will answer me because he was a short man i say this is great answer but i want you to go deeper and i'll start to give the background of uh, zacchaeus and every tax collector in the first century and the tax collector is hated from the community because he takes the money from people by force so whenever there's a lot of crowds the tax collectors make sure that he is not present in the crowds because no one likes him and here is zacchaeus wanted to see jesus and around jesus there is a lot of crowds so he saw a tree so he climbed the tree and I'll tell them, look at the branches of that tree. These branches are wide, so Zacchaeus can hide there and no one can see him. But guess what? Who saw him? The group will answer me, Jesus. I asked the group, what did Jesus tell him? Let us go and have dinner with you tonight. Do you know that the disciples were so much upset? A rabbi cannot have dinner with a tax collector. It's very shameful in the first century culture. And the disciples said to Jesus, you keep ashaming us. You keep putting us in trouble. But do you know when Jesus go and enter a house, what happens to the household? He repents. And the disciples were short-sighted. They did not see that happening. And Jesus went to his home and his life was saved and completely transformed. And Zacchaeus said, I will give back four times what I stole from people. And we want you to understand in the first century rabbinical teachings and way of thinking, if a tax collector steal money from someone by force, in order to be redeemed and in order to be healed, he have to give back four times the amount of money he stolen from that person. And this is how we can see Zacchaeus completely repented out from all his heart. And that was genuine repentance for Zacchaeus. 
After I finish explanation, I will tell the group to take some pictures and during the taking the pictures, I will put for them a song. And everyone will start singing. Yes, you come down. For I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, but a happy man was he. For he had seen the Lord that day, and a happy man was he. And a very happy man was he. This will make everyone joyful in the bus with their big smiles and uh, the atmosphere will be very positive and everyone is really joyful. So we continue all the way driving to what we call Mount Temptation. But I am different than other tour guides and I like to do the weird stuff. So we will not go to the major lookout where all the buses are there and it's crowded. I will tell my driver to go all the way through the offbeat track, through a very tiny route that is not made for buses, but it's possible. And the experience of seeing an ancient road and very winding, it's around five minutes drive until we reach all the way the mountain itself. Then I make all the group go out of the bus and there are some steps going all the way up to the top of the mountain to a monastery i will not go all the way up the steps maybe one third up and i let them all be seated and from that location they can see all jericho and all the scripture will become really alive for them and then i start teaching about the three temptations remember temptation number one where the devil took jesus to a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. This is why I'm taking the group to this high mountain. And from here, they can see a lot. And they can see all Jericho from this observation point. And this is why the devil took Jesus all the way up to the mountain. And from there, he showed him the kingdom of the world. And he told him, if you bow down to me, you're going to have and own all these kingdoms. And it will belong to you. Because you have to understand that what kings do in the first century, they gather things to themselves. And because they're king, they need about power, they need to feel like authority, and they need to have possessions. And this is what the devil is challenging Jesus with possessions. And as a king, he will have so much power. Satan literally is telling Jesus, do what kings do do they build monuments they build cities they like build palaces like herod the great that is what real kings do so do like them and own everything but jesus was very humble upside down kingdom he did not want to own anything or have any possession in his life jesus even did not own his clothes 
they played a lot for the uh, for the garments of his clothes he owned nothing in life and you have to understand when you own nothing you are free the more possessions think about it the more possessions you own in your life the more you are not free but the more you release things the more you'll become free to do the will of the Father in your life. And this is what Jesus has done. He did not want to own anything. He wanted to be free to do the Father's will in his life. So this is the first temptation. The second temptation is the devil is telling Jesus to turn these stones into bread. And as you see around you, this Judean desert is not like what you think in your mind, like the Sahara Desert, like sand desert. No, it's not sand desert. It is rocky desert and all are around stones. And these stones, when you are hungry and fasting for so many days and you're in the desert, like it's you're hallucinating and it's like a mirage and they can look like uh, bread. And there's more to this story. It's not just the temptation of the physical food the devil is talking about. It's the temptation of the spiritual food. And there is a unique relationship between the physical and the spiritual. And there are so many stories about the Bible mentioning about stones. And these stories, the stones are really have a deeper meaning. I'm going to share with you three quick stories what I mean. Stones can be like tough moments you pass in your life. Uh, stones are the hardships and after the pass of these hardships, the experiences, you had a moment with God. And remember the story of Jacob? He used a stone for a pillow because he was in the wilderness and he just wanted to rest and he slept and he had a vision from God during his sleep. And when he wakes up, he took the stone and built a pillar and that remembering him the place that he had the dream and he met with God. So the hardships of his life was sustained by God's vision and changing his life to walk much more deeper with God. So this became like a spiritual food to nourish and sustain Jacob as a spiritual man on his journey walking with God. Another story, remember the children of Israel crossing the Jordan River and with the leadership of Joshua ben Nun and holding the Ark of Covenant and the mighty deliverance of God and they entering the house of rest. And what did they do? They put 12 stones and they made an altar for God and that stones commemorize for them the spiritual maturity of crossing the Jordan River from the hardships they had in the desert for so many days entering to the house of rest to the promised land so the stones have spiritual food it's like a bread it's really really healthy for a spiritual substance to your life also king david fighting goliath he had five stones and he chose these five stones to be very smooth and despite the hardships he was as a shepherd he was uh, the least of his brothers and because of his being with God and in the name of God, he took these stones and he conquered Goliath. So these became the stepping stones from uh, David to go from a shepherd to be the king of Israel. So the devil is telling Jesus, if you are the Messiah, turn these stones into bread. And this is the temptation that you enjoy bread, that you enjoy 
of, of these things that are assembling stones for you and just do you enjoy like sin or you enjoy just a lot of food so jesus jesus did not was not tempted and he did not make these things priority in his life and he did not choose to enjoy things or gather things to himself but he was so much simple and so much humble king the third temptation the devil took jesus to the pinnacle of the temple let me explain for you the purpose of the pinnacle uh, on a temple and that way you can better understand the temptation usually in the first century at the pinnacle of the temple you announce about the jewish feasts and what you do you take the shofar the ram's horn the trumpet and you blow it from the corner side of the pinnacle and that way you declare about the authority of the feast and you declare about the new year in the beginning of the any jewish festivals from that pinnacle and also you have to understand that in your mindset like in your language is like in the center hall of times square where all the world hear about the new year remember this big ball that comes all the way each new year and explodes in new york that is the pinnacle of the temple this is where every messiah like to stand and to declare himself to his followers and to his crowd by becoming famous if you arrive to the pinnacle of the temple it means that you are so much important and this is what the devil is trying to do with jesus he's trying to take him all the way to the pinnacle of the temple and for him to show off and the devil is telling jesus if you throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple then the angels will come and hold you and all the people will see that you are the son of god and everyone will worship you so he is trying to tempt jesus to be very famous but we know that jesus was a different king he was an inductive teacher a very humble king and he did not want to show himself to all the crowds but opposite upside down kingdom a different messiah a humble messiah so this challenge us when we serve do you want to show off that you are serving uh, the messiah and serving god in the church or you're gonna serve behind the scenes without no one seeing what you are doing but only the father in heaven is seeing what ministry you are doing in the church so it's not about to be famous it's not about to be important and it's not about people like clapping their hands for you that you are important upside down kingdom humble ourselves so this is what we learn from all these three temptations after i finish teaching i will give the group like 10 minutes break and there's a small kiosk here and there are fresh pomegranate juice and fresh orange juice and some toilets to use before we continue back to the bus to go to learn about Qumran the Dead Sea Scrolls which will be our next stop and I will gonna share about Qumran and I will guide you through this site in the next session or the next episode thank you so much for listening I hope you enjoyed and had some spiritual food for you today